0: Well, if you have a Bible this morning, let's open up to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, as we continue on in our study of the fruit of the Spirit. You hopefully have noticed as we have moved through the liturgy up until this point that we are talking about the idea of peace and looking at that particular fruit this morning. So remember, if you have no idea where Romans is, that's okay. Feel free to use the table of contents. You'll Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans... And then look for the big number five. That's the chapter that we're going to be in. And we're going to look at the first five verses of this chapter this morning and be reminded of the great hope of the gospel. And so as you're opening up to Romans 5, let me tell you a story about when I was growing up. Growing up, um, my childhood buddy and I, Brandon, rode around our neighborhood on our bikes. As you know, before you can drive, that's your primary mode of transportation and you can only go so far. And one of the things that we did was my house growing up was kind of on a hill, and so our house kind of sat on the top of the hill, and it kind of kind of moved down. There was like a, a, a neighborhood lake at the bottom, so all the land kind of went down. And one of the things that Brandon and I did, especially over the summer, was guys on bikes, we would, I don't know if you've ever had one of those bikes where you can slam on the foot brakes and then skid. That's what we did a lot. And one place in particular that we liked to do it was we would leave my house, the hill at the top, we would ride, cross the road, then go down my neighbor's driveway, who had this long sloping driveway, and he had this kind of big patch of concrete at the end. And what we would do is get as much speed as we could, then go down, slam on the brakes and skid. Then we would put a stick down and see who could get as close to the garage door of my neighbor as we possibly could. You probably figure out where this is going to go. And Brandon and I would take turns flying down the hill and skidding to the bottom, and my we would each get three tries. And so my third term, I uh, it was my turn. It was the third try. It was kind of now or never. He was in the lead, and so I needed to come down and beat his skid. And so off I did. I, I went down the hill. I wanted to beat him, and you know up until this point we had had a lot of practice. But in order to really beat him, I made sure I, I made a mistake of including one more revelation, one more kind of revolution of the pedal. And so what that did was it actually set me off my rhythm. And so when I slammed on the brakes, what I did was I skidded sideways for about three feet and then slammed into my neighbor's garage door. And you can imagine, uh, uh, thankfully it was a wooden door, uh, although it hurt <laughs> But you can imagine the echo that kind of went through the neighborhood and obviously through the house as I slammed into his my neighbor's garage door and hearing that noise, Brandon, being the good friend that he did, took off running <laughs> and left me there. And uh, he left me dazed and confused at the bottom of the driveway. And then I opened my eyes and I saw my neighbor, this man of about sixty year old, kind of looking down at me, staring down at me, wondering what was going on and, He fussed at me and he was mad at me and and I was so mad at Brandon for leaving me and now my neighbor was mad at me. What am I going to do? I'll tell you the rest of the story at the end. As you think about that time, I bet you can think of a time when you and someone else were at odds with someone. It's not very fun. It's not a fun time to be in. Some of you may actually enjoy being in constant conflict with others. I am not one of them. I'm not one of those people. I am willing to enter into it if necessary for a time, but conflict keeps me up at night. It keeps my stomach in knots. I do not enjoy it, and you probably don't either. And as you survey the world around you and your own life, in your, your neighborhood, your family, whatever it is, it doesn't take long to realize that peace is actually a very elusive thing in a fallen world, is it not? All around us the world is full of strife, it's full of conflict, it's full of self-interest. Why? Because it's full of a bunch of sinners. And so you think about this and, and the, how elusive peace is in our fallen world. You think about poets have written about peace for centuries. Singers have sung about peace for what seems to be forever. Politicians have given speeches and called for peace. Rodney King famously called for it during the L.A. riots when he said, can't we all just get along? Yet it remains elusive. Think about how many decades politicians have called for, quote, peace in the Middle East, and yet it's still just as it seems like it's never gonna happen. What this does as we survey the world around us is it reminds us that true peace must come from God Himself, which is why it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's something that God has to give us. C.S. Lewis famously wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. But the Bible tells us that humanity is already at odds with God because of our sin. And you think about the grand scope of creation. Genesis 1 and 2, God makes all things including people and everything was at peace. And the Hebrew word there, shalom, and it was all very good. But it takes, how long did it take humanity to break that peace? About a page and a half in the Bible, if you look at it. Two pages, if you have a study Bible or a large print, that's about how far humanity makes it. So you have creation in Genesis 1 and 2, then you have the fall in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve believed a lie about God and they sinned against God and they broke that shalom. That, that shalom that existed between God and his people was broken. And God kicked them out of the garden because his holiness demanded it. And so you think about true peace only comes from God himself, but yet we are at odds with God because of our sin. And Romans 5 tells us that. The question then becomes, Is how do sinful people like us who are at odds with God ever hope to gain true peace from the only source of peace that we've already offended? How does that work? How can that broken relationship be restored? The answer to that question changes absolutely everything. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so let's give attention to Romans chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord does indeed stand forever. I'm grateful for that and I hope you are as well. Let's go before the Lord and ask him to help us as we look to his word. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, we come before you and we pray, oh, Holy Spirit, that you would please speak through your word and speak through me this morning, oh, Lord, and please be with me as I felt the attacks of Satan and discouragement from the time I got up this morning. And Father, um, just please pray that you be with me and strengthen me and encourage all of our hearts and remind us of Christ, remind us of the peace that you have purchased for us, Lord, through the cross. Remind us of your grace. Remind us of your mercy. Strengthen us, weak as we are. Lord, encourage our hearts this morning with this beautiful reminder of the gospel. We pray and ask all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, as we look to Romans 5 this morning, when, when Rebecca and I, we used to live in Virginia. We used to live on the coast of Virginia in the Tidewater area. And because of that, we had military installations basically every five feet We were at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, kind of in a very strategic area, so we had naval and marine and army. We had every single branch, it seemed like, right there in multiples of those. And one of the things that I got used to when I would go and just kind of meet with people there in Virginia, basically everybody had some sort of military connection And one of the things that I always had a hard time doing was try to understand a conversation with like, especially if you had two military guys that started talking to each other and you were there, it was like they were speaking in a completely different language. I didn't know that you could communicate so much through three-letter acronyms, but they would almost have their own like private conversation in what seemed to me just to be a kind of a jumbled up resuscitation of the alphabet. And the whole time, I I tried my best to try to figure out what in the world they were talking about. I would go online actually afterwards, and I was like, "What is what does that acronym mean?" And you know, what I found is that in the military, there's just this own kind of vernacular and these these acronyms, and it has its own language, really. And have you ever noticed when you've, you've hung around the church that often, you ever noticed that modern evangelicalism has its own language? There's your own little phrases and things that we say that kind of to the outside world, they're like, what in the world are you talking about? There's one phrase that I still, I don't think, fully understand, and it is the phrase, I have a peace about it. I never have really understood that phrase. Like, what does that mean? What does that look like? What's it feel like? The phrase has never made sense to me because I never know what it's supposed to feel like. Is it a lack of worry or anxiety? Is it a constant happiness? Like, what is that? What does, I have a peace about it, what does it mean? And this morning we're trying to understand what the Bible says about the third fruit of the Spirit. We remember in Galatians 5, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. That's the one we're talking about. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we're looking at this third fruit this morning, and peace is an important word in the Bible. It's a super important word in our passage this morning. In the Old Testament, the word is, in the Hebrew, is shalom, which according to Strong's Concordance is a kind of quiet tranquility, a feeling of safety, friendship. But that word means so much more. That is a deep and rich word in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, which is primarily written in Greek, the word there is irene, which means the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. And so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatever sort that is. Very helpful definition, kind of a working definition of this word that we see this morning. And here's what Christopher Wright said in his helpful little book on the fruit of the Spirit. He said, Once our relationship with God is settled, then the Spirit of God pours His new life into our lives and that life of God begins to bear fruit. And so getting in the Right order is crucial to our understanding of the Holy Spirit. And this is something that we've talked about for the past few weeks and may change even the way that you may have heard the fruit of the Spirit taught before, that cultivating the fruit of the Spirit is not something we do on our own to quote-unquote settle our relationship with God. These are not things that we kind of gin up in and of ourselves and then we bring them to the Lord and say, hey, is this enough peace for you to love me? hey, is this enough kindness? Is this enough goodness? Is this enough for me to finally settle our relationship? That's not how the fruit of the Spirit worked, thankfully, because that's an impossible task. The fruit of the Spirit is something God cultivates in us as a result of the relationship being restored by Him and not us. And we'll see that this morning in our passage. Again, here's what Wright said about kind of this chasing after and trying to do it on your own. He said, cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, you see, is not about polishing our own halo or keeping up a good image. That sort of thing is stupid and false and everybody, including God, can see through it. It's about making Christ visible and making the gospel attractive. So this pursuit of trying to do it on our own is a a fool's errand. And so we trust the Lord as he works these fruit of the Spirit in us and through our lives it overflows into the world around us. And the idea of peace lies right at the heart of getting this in that proper gospel order and making Christ visible in our lives to a broken and dying world. And so, our two big points that we're going to look at this morning, if you're a note taking type of person, as we think about this idea and this word of peace, what's that look like? Number one, we're going to see the peace that God gives to his people. The peace that God gives to his people. Then, in our second point, we're going to see the peace that God works through his people. So the peace that God gives to us, and then the peace that God works through us is what we're going to look at. So let's look at that first point, the peace that God gives to his people. If you are familiar with Paul's letter to the Romans, you know that it starts with anything but peace. Romans, it begins actually with wrath. Chapters 1 through 3 in the letter to the Romans is full of bad news. Paul starts off with kind of this universal indictment against the sin of humanity. Sin has left absolutely everyone under God's wrath and judgment. Paul says that everyone is guilty, regardless of religious background, ethnicity, religious performance, and just a sweeping indictment, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one has a righteousness on their own that excludes them from judgment. And that leaves humanity with a huge question. Well, what do we do about that problem? If all of us stand under the wrath and judgment of God, where do we go? What do we do? But the end of chapter 3, Paul makes a little switch and the good news gets turned on like a fire hose, and from there on out, it's just good news, and God gives the solution, where you hear again, but now, but now, God has acted in this way. God has given us a righteousness apart from the law, and outside of ourselves. The fancy word for that is extra nos, from outside of ourselves, this righteousness that we do not have in our own hearts. It has to be given to us, and it is given to us, through Christ In chapter 4, Paul uses the life of Abraham as a case study. And remember, he says famously that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This doctrinal idea or this topic of justification by faith alone. And we finally arrive at chapter 5 where we are this morning and you see that ever crucial word, therefore. Which again, you ask the question is, what's it there for? So in light of all of this stuff that we've talked about, chapters 1, two, three, and 4, bad news, good news, wrath, and judgment, and the life of Abraham. Therefore, because the good news of chapter 3 and 4 is true, look at how Paul starts off in, in chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the good news that's there. And you think we have peace with God through faith. But faith in what? Faith in our own efforts? Faith in my own religious performance? Faith in how many times I come to church? Whatever it is. Faith in what? Paul tells us. We have obtained faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace comes through Christ and Christ alone. Think about the assurance of pardoning grace that we read this morning. Just a wonderful reminder of this, where Paul wrote, For in Him, speaking of Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making what? Peace by the blood of His cross. This end of enmity and warfare and strife. You see, Christ did what we could never do on our own, which is restore peace with a holy God. How did he do that? How did he restore this peace? He dealt with our sin problem by offering up himself, by his death on the cross for us. You think about, on our behalf, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still under that wrath, Christ gave himself. And we stand in awe of Christ, and we rest in Christ, and we glory in Christ and what he has done. You think about what Christ actually did and Romans actually starts off with this idea of you know we are storing up wrath for ourselves. The the amazing thing as I've thought about that picture, it's like the Hoover Dam. If you've ever been to it, it's super tall, holds back tons of water. And you think the sin of humanity is like every single time we do it, it's taking another bucket of water and throwing it behind the dam. And it is being stored up. And you think about what Christ did on the cross, the Hoover Dam of God's wrath Just wrath for sin, unleashed, but not on you, on Christ. And he bore the full weight of that, the crushing weight of that, because God's holiness demanded that sin needed to be dealt with. And so Christ himself endured the torrent of God's wrath for us by grace. So the first and last phrases of verse 1 have massive implications for Christians. It starts off, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, not our works, we've been justified by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we have any English majors or English nerds here in the building, the aorist tense is used. It says, have been, which is a completed action in the past. Jesus' final words on the cross were what? It is finished, completed action in the past. And you see this middle phrase of verse 1, it says, We have peace with God. Again, English majors here, the indicative mood is used, which is a statement of fact in the present. So there's a completed action that's happened in the past that leads to a statement of fact in the here and now. Therefore, because of what Christ has done, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ for all that He has done. And so you think, so what? Why should I care? Why should I care about the tenses here in verse 1? Paul is not talking about a subjective feeling that changes from hour to hour. He's not talking about how we feel about this. What he's talking about is an objective spiritual reality in the present tense that you can hold on to regardless of your circumstances. You may not feel at peace, but if you are in Christ, you have right now peace with God. And that is an objective reality for us to hold on tightly to and rest in. So if you trust Christ by faith, what that means is that you believe that you are a sinner. That you have sinned against a holy God. And that you have been saved by grace through the cross of Christ and Christ alone. The good news of the gospel is this. You have peace with God. Peace with Him. Not warfare. Not enmity. Not strife. Not hatred. Peace. Peace. You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing reminder of God's grace. But the warning here is, is the same that if you do not trust Christ by faith alone, if you do not see yourself as a sinner, if you think that you're a pretty good person in and of yourself on your own, and you don't need God, you do not have peace with God. And the wrath is still stored up for you, and you will have to endure that torrent on your own. It's bad news. But there's good news in Christ, and so I, as a minister of the gospel, my simple claim is this: flee to Christ, run to Christ, see yourself as a sinner in desperate need of God's grace, and flee to Christ and Christ alone. But we think, even in the midst of this, we hear these great promises of verse one, and that there's, we have peace with God. But how many Christians still live their lives as though God is mad at them? That may be you today. You've sinned big. And you think, and, and only you and God know about that big sin and you feel guilty about it and you, you keep waiting for the lightning to strike and the wrath to fall. You think, well, if he only knew about that one, about that one. I'm just waiting for the hammer to drop. When is, when is the recompense going to come due? When is the bill going to come due? And you live in constant fear of that. The good news of the gospel is this objective fact this morning. That if you are in Christ, all of the things that keep you in a cycle of shame and guilt have been paid for at the cross of Christ. It is finished. What sin do you have in your life if you were a Christian? What sin do you have that it was too big for Christ to not accomplish? Redemption for. What thing in your life is not covered by the final words of Christ where he said, It is finished? That it's been dealt with. See, that's the amazing news of the gospel, and you think, well, it can't be that free. There has to be something I need to do. It can't be that free. Oh, that's the good news of the gospel, though. It is. It is that good. It is that free. Because Christ has done it. And so we look to Christ, and we trust in Christ. And we remember that statement of fact. It is finished. Paul says that if you're a Christian, God has declared you righteous forever. And because of this, you no longer have to live in fear of judgment, as if you're somehow on spiritual parole. You've been set free from jail, but you need to make sure that you go back in and check in and bring your good works and bring your righteousness and say, look, I've been a good boy. Look, I've been a good girl. Is this good enough to grant me a few more weeks or days out on the street? That's not how the gospel works. That's not how Christianity works. We don't live our lives on parole. You can live with the absolute assurance that you have peace with God forever because of Christ. And so again, the call is this. Trust Christ and calm down. Calm down. Trust Christ. You've been set free. Regardless of your feelings and performance from day to day, you have peace. Regardless of how, quote-unquote, on fire you feel about God, you have peace. The good news of the gospel is we're not always on fire for God, but He always loves us. He's faithful when we are faithless. He loves us even when we were at our most unlovable. Isn't that the good news of the gospel? It really is that simple, but boy, don't we love to complicate it. We love to in interject some like form of do or something of us into the equation. As soon as you do that, you lost the gospel. It's all about Christ. It's all about Him. He made peace with God. And you think peace with God is a huge deal. It is a present reality for those in Christ. What it tells us is that God is not mad at you. Paul could have stopped right there, and that would have been great on its own, but he didn't. Look at the other we benefits that accompany this justification by faith. Look at verse 2. He says, through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What, a, what an amazing thing. Then we look at, look at verse 3. It says, and we rejoice in our suffering. Whoa, wait, What? <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, all those promises sound great, but and we rejoice in our... What? We rejoice in our suffering? How's that work? Remember, for Paul, suffering didn't mean someone was mean to him once, or he didn't get invited to a party. You think about the life of Paul. What did he endure? Stonings, shipwrecks, being beaten within an inch of his life, run out of town. And when you think about for Paul, he says, And yet, even in the midst of that, we rejoice in our suffering. Paul says that peace with God, which is this week's fruit, allows us to rejoice, which is last week's fruit, love, joy. We rejoice in our sufferings because God's love, the first fruit, has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit and we were reminded of these objective truths. The love of God, the joy of God, the peace of God. All those three hang together. And we're reminded of these objective facts as we live and we walk in the world. How can Christians experience joy in the midst of suffering? By standing on the trustworthy promises of a trustworthy God. These promises of peace and access and acceptance and love and assurance and forgiveness and grace... And they rest in His goodness and love and His sovereignty and His providence in the midst of pain and suffering and ongoing fights with sin. We rest in what Christ has said. We we rest in the promises of God. We say, regardless of the circumstances, I'm going to believe that. And I'm going to rest in that. Even though I don't feel it, I'm going to rest in it. I'm going to trust in it. Here's what Augustine said. What grace is meant to do is to help good people, not to escape their sufferings, but to bear them with a stout heart, with a fortitude that finds its strength in faith. The entire Bible assures us from cover to cover that God can be completely trusted. And so when he says that we have peace with God, it is exactly that. Again, here's what Wright said. He said, for a life that is filled with this kind of peace is a powerful witness to the gospel, which is our second point which is the peace that God works through His people. So this peace that God has given to His people comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet, there's also a powerful witness to the world around us, which is this peace that God works through His people. Thomas Watson once was walking behind a father and son, and the father picked up his son and hugged him and said, I love you, son. And the son replied while in his arms, I love you too. Now, was the son at that moment that he was in his dad's arms legally any more his son? No. But was the son experientially more his son? As he heard the words of his father just remind him, hey, I love you. And for a second it just kind of drew close. Was there yes? He felt that in that moment. And the job of the Holy Spirit is to make what is legally true of you in heaven right now if you were in Christ... An experiential reality as you see the fruit grow in your heart and you're changed by grace and then that fruit spills out of you into the world around you as a witness to Christ. A few chapters later in Romans, Paul describes what this practically looks like in Romans chapter 4, verses 14 and 18. Paul writes, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As this fruit pours out and it becomes a blessing to the world around us. Remember, having that in the, gospel, in the right gospel order is absolutely crucial. We can die to ourselves and seek to live at peace with others because God made peace with us first by sending His Son to die in our place and secure that peace. Getting that in the right order matters. Why can we, why are we set free to live at peace and to die to ourselves and live unto Christ and to be peacemakers? What sets us free to do that? Because God has already done that for us. And we live out of that objective reality that we see in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Again, we were reminded, 1 John 4, 19. We love, why? Because He first loved us. Getting that in the proper order is amazing. Again, here's what Wright said, super helpful on this. He said, since God, quote, since God has made peace between Himself and us at His own great cost through the death of Jesus on the cross... God now calls us to live in peace with one another as a way of living out the transforming power of the cross in our practical lives. But that does not come naturally to us in our fallen sinfulness and dividedness. It is something that has to be cultivated like fruit, the fruit of God's Spirit at work within us and between us. And that's why Paul can both describe it as fruit and also tell us to make every effort to live in that way, end quote. Long quote, but a helpful quote. Now we think about the call of that to go and live at peace with each other, and we realize that we're going to mess that up. You do realize that, right? We're going to mess that up. But this is where we all need Jesus, and we rest upon his grace, and we go and say, Lord, work this fruit in me. Lord, give me more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Give me more of those, oh Lord. Help me to be about that work in the, in the area in which I live. Lord, work that fruit in me. I realize I don't have that. I'm not a peacemaker. I'm going to mess this up. And we go to Christ and we say, Lord, please forgive me. But Lord, give me more peace. Help me to be a peacemaker. We're all going to mess it up. But empowered by the Holy Spirit and anchored by grace, we seek the upward call of God to be people who seek to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And we're called to be thankful, as Paul reminds us in Colossians 3. And so how are you seeing this fruit grow in your life? Almost done. How, do, how are you seeing this fruit growing in your life this morning? How is a deepening understanding of the peace of God purchased at Christ's expense freeing you up to live at peace with others? Or is it? Are you still just hard-hearted when you think, I still need to do this on my own and I don't want to give peace to this person. I don't want to seek forgiveness to that person. I don't want to do that. My simple call would be to look to Christ. Look to this supper set before you. What Christ has done to accomplish that peace. Look to Jesus. Trust and rest in Him. Who do you need to make peace with today? Who are you refusing to extend a word of peace to? Again, as I think about this, I think, what if God still held our faults over our head? Are you asking others to adhere to a standard that even you can't keep? That I'll only extend you peace if you do X, Y, and Z and you you make the spiritual checklist that I've put in front of you. What if God did that to you? What if He continued to do that with you? What What if it wasn't finished? Go and make peace. Let today be the day. Repent. Flee to the cross. Flee to Christ. Trust the Holy Spirit as you seek peace for the glory of Christ. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And we can be called sons of God and make peace because the Son of God made peace, peace with us first by the blood of his cross. And again, as we're so quick to forget, we're so quick to forget, a tangible reminder of the links Christ went to secure this peace with God is set before you this morning in this table. The Lord's Supper. How did Jesus make peace? He made it by the blood of His cross. What is this reminder of? Christ's body broken for you. Christ's blood shed for you. For the forgiveness of sins. A reminder of the peace that He purchased at the cross. A reminder of all that God has done for us I want you to let the words of Romans 5, 1 and 2 hang like a banner over this table as we gather around it in just a moment. What are those words? You have them right there. These are the banner. This is the banner that hangs over this table as we come. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The good news of the gospel I remember when I was on the ground at my neighbor's house, staring up, and I had this angry guy looking down at me. He was angry, rightfully so. I drilled his garage door. But he was also worried about me. I told him what we were doing, and he fussed at me for doing something foolish, and he was absolutely right. And I quickly apologized, I grabbed my bike, and I ran home. (laughs) And the next day, we had a school field trip to the local museum in Greenwood, South Carolina. And when, and when we all got there, I found out my neighbor was the curator. <laughs> I walked in, I'm like, oh no. And I hid in shame and I tried not to make eye contact. You know, you look at your shoes the whole time, you're like, maybe if I don't look at him, he won't look at me. I'm like, oh man, this is the worst. I hid in shame, I tried not to make eye contact, but it was, as you know, it was a small town. It was a small museum, and there was nowhere to hide. And Later on in the tour, as I was continuing to look at my shoes and just try to get through this, I saw a big pair of shoes come up next to me. And I looked up, and my neighbor was sitting there next to me, and he was smiling, and he was winking. We were at peace, and I knew it. While I was hiding in guilt and shame, he sought me out. He moved towards me. He reconciled me to himself. He paid for the damages to the garage door himself, and I never heard another word about it. Ladies and gentlemen, as you consider the moral of that story, I lay before you that is the gospel message of grace. Hiding in our guilt and shame, in our brokenness and our fear and our worry, while we're staring at our shoes, the Lord comes up, and he's made peace with us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not good news So if you're here and you trust Christ as you take this table, be reminded it is finished. It's finished. It's done. His grace is real. His mercy is real. There's no catch. There's no catch. There's no gotcha. For those of you who trust in Christ, hear the promise and the good news of the gospel. Your sin debt has been paid for. And through the cross of Christ, you now have peace with God. And that allows us to be set free to be about that work of peace in the world around us. Because we are bolstered along. Our sails are filled with the grace of God as we move out. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you that in the midst of our shame and our brokenness and our guilt, you sought us out. You didn't shoo us away, but you made peace by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so it is to Christ that we flee. It is to Christ that we look. We hold tightly to Christ And we are grateful for this shalom that's been restored between God and man because of Christ. And I pray as we come to the table this morning, we would be reminded as we taste and see the gospel. We're so forgetful, O Lord. Thank you for this sign that you've placed before us and remind us of your grace and your mercy. We pray and ask all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.